hey happy 4th of July, everyone. If you do hear fireworks and rockets going off, it means that you are now listening to a podcast with two gentlemen that are inside, not getting drunk on the 4th of July, but here to deliver you content about baseball and basketball here on the 4th of July. So happy 4th to all of our American listeners. And if you're not from America, know this is a special day of independence here that we celebrate in the U.S. of A. I am your host, Matt Guest. With me out in the war zone, that is Las Vegas, is Matt Morris. What's up, brother? Happy 4th, man. This is a fun little episode here that we're going to do, and probably some bombs in the backdrop. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, brother. Happy 4th. Uh, was scrolling last night on social media like we all do and came across the Independence Day speech that the you know movie president gives as they are launching their final attack on the alien mothership got me fired yeah. up dude one of the like looking and i loved that movie growing up uh the original independence day and just listening to him i was like dude i'd go i'd jump in a fighter pilot and go kill some aliens like <laughs> no this you know he says like you know the fourth is known as an american holiday like this will no longer be known as an, just an american holiday but like a uh, a humanity holiday or something like that and i was like let's go let's go fire some alien uh mothership bad boys and uh so yeah dude i'm feeling it Little, uh, I think it's a testament of our age, though. We are here recording. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know you were at the shop all weekend, and I ended up going to a, a baseball game last night, which, by the way, AAA baseball might be my preferred baseball viewing now. Um, we were at the, the, the A Stadium for their AAA affiliate, the Aviators, and we've talked in past episodes how the expectations that the A's are going to play at this the stadium. Uh, six stadium. I mean, like it's got to be like two years old, I think three years old and to like mesh seats. So you're not burning your butt off. Like it's comfortable. Um, it's gonna be a pretty cool experience if they come here. And I think it holds like 20,000 fans. Maybe I'm wrong with that 15,000. Um, but overall cool experience that was our 4th of July festivities. They shot the fireworks off at the end of the game, which I was kind of like, yeah, I'm 31 now. Um, don't really need to watch fireworks. And I think I'm <laughs> yeah. good on this. And uh, here we are. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I've got a young one at home, so but he's still super young where it was like he he doesn't know any better. He just heard a mortar go off mid sleep and started <laughs> freaking out. You know what I mean? So um, we're, we're all at different stages of our life. Um, couldn't be happier to discuss sports on the 4th of July and not be blacked out, to be honest with you. It, it feels great. But for all those out there that are listening post blackout, like I get it, been there, done, that's a great time. So enjoy yourself. Cheers to you. Cheers to America. Um, that is cool, though, that the AAA affiliate stadium, and I think 15,000 is a really good litmus test as well for the success that the A's will have coming over. I just think it's funny and it'll be um, similar to when the Blue Jays went over to. Yep. Where were they playing in Buffalo and playing in that AAA affiliate up there? Yeah, and that having right. actual professional baseball teams playing in a AAA stadium, right? Like having the Yankees come to town, having some of these big stars coming and just hitting monster shots in honestly these amateur stadiums. So that'll be pretty fun. And I hope you get to go view some of those games out there when, you know, the Brew Crew or some of your favorite players are in town. Sounds awesome, honestly. We were talking about it. We were like, we were kind of like, hell, we might lock ourselves into season tickets um, when when they're out here for the couple of seasons at the AAA affiliate because it, it is going to be such a unique experience. And third base side really gets crushed by the sun. Like, we couldn't actually sit in our seats until I think the third or fourth inning oh, because wow. you're, you're staring straight at the batter. And for whatever reason, the architect of the stadium didn't choose to do like a mesh net above the, the second concourse on the third base side, which is what I would have done to like block out the sun. Um, anyways, put my you know negativity on the side here. It, it's going to be a really cool experience. There were a couple of home runs in the game. And off the bat, you're like, yeah, that's a home run. This kid's 25, like probably stuck at AAA. He's a quad A player, right? Just not good enough to make the pros. And my thought was like, Otani's at the plate. He's going to hit that ball into the parking lot. Like he's literally <laughs> going to damage someone's car because the wall in right field is 340. We're higher elevation in extremely dry heat. So the ball just completely flies here. And the parking lot's probably about 420 or 440 uh, from home plate. 
And I kid you not, cars are going to be ruined when these pro players hit the, hit the stadium. And I'm excited for that. And it's a great, great facility. Um, and I, I think that's the cool. biggest takeaway I had was somebody invested in this ballpark in the more ritzy area of the, the like the Las Vegas suburbs. They spent the money to have this be a premium asset. And like it really is like this isn't Wrigley Field. This isn't, you know, Fenway Park. But when you're sitting there, you're actually enjoying the game. And um, it'll be a cool two years if the A's do choose the Aviators Park as their ballpark. Yeah, and Otani will be landing some on some cars, considering he literally just hit a ball four hundred and was it four hundred ninety two ninety four. Yeah. Uh, I did get confirmation from my Angel fans and Orange Orange County affiliates that that ball was farther than the home run that Barry Bonds hit in the World Series. That if you listened to us a year or two ago or saw our TikTok that I told all my friends in the in the ballpark, um, or excuse me, in the playground chatter as a kid in Orange County was that Barry Bonds hit that ball into the freeway. So just for context, uh, Shohei Otani is doing things only Barry Bonds has done in, in our lifetime, at least, Matt, which is freaking awesome and a big reason why we're massive fans. And we're sad to see him go out of the game today. But I think that'll be a topic for next week once we get some more confirmation on what happened to him and obviously what's going on with Mike Trout and the Angels overall as well. Well, and you shared with me this week, um, Russo's podcast, which I, I listened to. Jeff Passage was on. Yeah. Russillo, yeah. Russillo, yeah. <laughs> um, Russo is a baseball guy as well. Sorry. But it was fantastic to listen. And one of the big things that caught my my ears while listening was Russillo saying very openly that Anaheim Angels and the baseball experience you have at that ballpark is the worst in baseball. And I was like, what? Like, I share this opinion. I was like, I've never really actually heard anybody outright say this. And I've been to probably 10 major league ballparks. My, I think my least favorite up until I had gone to an angels game was Arizona. They were not a very good team. This was the days of Justin Upton. I actually spent more time buying merchandise than I did watching the game because they weren't good. But I'm telling you, Matt, Angel Stadium is the worst baseball experience I've ever had. The fans genuinely don't give a shit. Um, and I, I know that's unfair. Like they have Otani and Trout, but I, I've been around big baseball fans and like Orange County just doesn't have the juice. And I was telling our friends actually yesterday at the game, I said, the only thing that I enjoyed about Angel Stadium was the Budweiser deck. I can't even go to the Budweiser deck anymore for self-principle. And it's just, it's interesting to see when, when, um, Russillo was talking about Otani and like the experience of the game and like, will he go to a bigger market because he wants to be around better baseball fans to have someone from the national media share that opinion. And then he roped it into, well, Otani's comfortable in Anaheim, which I 100% agree with. Um, Otani, as we've talked over the last three years has given up a lot of money with his decision to come over earlier. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And as, as we dissect it, but yeah, definitely Anaheim Angels, um, not the number one experience on my baseball viewing list. Yeah, and he almost hit it to the Budweiser patio, which when oh, I was watching you it imagine? on. Oh, yeah. Well, that's when I was watching it live. I was like, holy shit. He almost, uh, did he hit the Budweiser deck? Because I mean, you and I have spent <laughs> countless games up yes. there. And once I turned 21, that's the only spot I was watching the game till the fifth inning because to your point, no one goes to the games and actually watches. You can just stumble down, try and catch a home run in the in the big porch in right field. But yeah, man, um, it's, it'll be interesting. We'll, we'll dive a little deeper into Otani next week. I want you to uh, to get into your couple baseball topics you wanted to talk about before I uh, head the NBA free agency and some of the trade rumors with Damian Lillard and all that stuff. So I'll, I'll let you take over and talk a little baseball and then we'll get into basketball. Yeah, well, and I just kind of want to reiterate um, our L.A. Dela Cruz conversation that we had. I think it was about a month ago now, right before the call-up was imminent. And then, you know, he hits the major leagues, hits his home run in the second game, has that incredible announcement from um, from the broadcaster talking about how the ball had a family. One of the greatest calls of all time, you know, just ad lib right out there. I, I had said that L.A. Dela Cruz at that moment, in my opinion, was probably going to come into the league as the best baseball player. Now, I think we have to take Shohei Otani out of this conversation because he is unlike anything we've ever seen. So I think what we really have to do is compare Ellie De La Cruz to Ronald Acuna, Fernando Tatis, you know, Juan Soto, Aaron Judge. And I think when I said that, I was a little bit ignorant in my comments, but 
after the cycle that we saw, which is the, I think if I'm correct, the uh, only the third player to ever cycle in his first 15 games. And correct. fourth youngest, um, if I am correct with that as well. Yeah. Um, that's incredible stat right there. But when you actually watch the game tape of Ellie De La Cruz, you see you see certain attributes that we don't see from anyone but Otani. And those are the things that really get me excited. He had four for four today. He stole a base, completely overslid the bag because he was so damn fast that he was ultimately tagged out. But he's only been thrown out twice on the base paths. One was an attempt to steal home, kind of trying to catch the defense napping. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work for him. But what we're watching from Ellie De La Cruz is a 32% strikeout rate from a 21-year-old. That was supposed to be his glaring weakness at the major league level. 32% strikeout rate. He's still batting over 300. We haven't seen the power fully develop yet, but we've seen the exit velocity at 116, which for a 21-year-old ranks in the 99th percentile. His hard hit is the 98th percentile as well over the course of his short-lived major league career. Sprint speed's in the 100th percentile with Corbin Carroll. And then his arm velocity is at the 98th percentile. So I kind of want to jump back to my original comment four weeks ago. I genuinely feel like going into next season, 2024 Major League Baseball opening day, I think L.A. De La Cruz is the most valuable position player in all of baseball. And I don't think it's easy to have that argument anymore. Yeah, I love it, man. He's the, the impact is undeniable. I think they're a total of 20 or 21 and six since he's been called up. They're by far the favorites in the NL Central, and it's all because of his presence and his style of play. Like you said, the most valuable position player and what you cannot what you can't uh, measure via statistics in the hundredth percentile and all this is what a guy brings to the team, right? He is actually taking every single player on that team up to the next level to his level like hey if you want to play with me i expect greatness out of you right i'm going to be the fastest guy hit the ball the hardest out of everyone but i'm also going to expect that from you i want to see your best effort at all times and that's what's amazing about what he's done with the cincinnati reds in literally matt one calendar month like he didn't even come up more than a month ago right like a little bit over with 26 27 games whatever it is in just this short amount of time, they've catapulted to the top of the NL Central. And if they can keep this up, and we'll see come trade deadline after All-Star Week next week, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, Matt, they're one move away from having a really solid starting staff. Eh, maybe not solid, but a good enough starting staff to compete with the Dodgers, with the Braves, and probably with San Diego as they're starting to catch fire a little bit too. Um I don't know. I, I haven't done enough legwork on my end to agree with you, but I don't think that's that hot of a take at this point in time, especially if he stays healthy. And by the way, that steal home, the catcher blocked him. And I don't know how that wasn't not called a block, by the yep. way. I did see that. So uh, I, I'm a little confused. That's probably like a catch in football deal scenario of blocking home plate. What isn't? But in my opinion, it was clear as day that he blocked him. And I'm just glad he didn't get hurt on that play, to be honest. Well, and it's it's the raw ability that you see, you know, when you talk about scouting Major League Baseball players, there's a science to it. And the reason that I'm pushing Ellie into that number one uh, position player tier is because I've watched Acuna and I've watched Tatis. And they have undeniable above average talent, right? They are the top five players in the league. Acuna is number one. Tatis is arguably, you know, four or three, depending on where Judge falls into there. Um, there's a difference, though. And then we kind of brought this up a few weeks ago in regards to like generational phenoms. LeBron James, when he was being touted as, you know, the savior of basketball, the next MJ, you could see the difference on the court physically, ball skills, mentality wise. There was something that you had not seen in probably a generation since Jordan. Uh, you see that the same thing with Barry Bonds, right? And that was in the podcast that we just referenced a little while ago. Otani was referenced to Barry Bonds on Rusillo's podcast. Like, and I think that's a fantastic comp. You see it with your own eyes the difference that this individual is making for the game. The reason I'm comparing this with uh, L.A. De La Cruz is because while Acuna and Tatis are good, they've had injuries because of their physical gifts. They're absolutely physically above other players in the league. But just yesterday, while Okunia is stealing his 40th bag, he hurts his shoulder at second base. And you're like, oh, man, was that 40th bag really worth it? It's always the concern you have with Okunia when he takes off is it's like, is he going to hurt himself as he steals the next bag? Is he going to be out for three months because he dislocated his shoulder doing something that other guys can't physically do on a regular basis because this is what happens? 
Ellie De La Cruz on the baseball field does everything effortlessly. When he's taking off from first to second, I'm not worried that he's going to get hurt at second base because he does it in a way that just looks different than everybody else that's doing it. And that reminds me a lot of when I watched Bonds and when I watched LeBron and watching Otani, just these physical specimens that are different than everyone around them where you just see it with the eye test and you're like, he's different in every category and he's just going to be the guy. Yeah, and everyone responds to it. You're right, it is effortless. Just watching him run to first base, watching him slide head first, it just seems like he's playing at a different speed, mm -hmm. literally, than everyone else out there and that the game is moving slower for him. And the thing that you were most concerned about him coming up when you, you kind of introduced me to him because I didn't know much about him before, obviously now he's one of the most popular players in the game, was that you were really nervous he was going to be striking out too much and that really might hinder his progress and his impact on the Cincinnati Reds, but it's been the complete opposite. It's been the homers that are a little bit down, but that's small adjustments that you can make. And as we've been talking about now, since baseball started in the beginning of the year, it's just making contact and having average and putting the ball in play for a guy like that is making teams <laughs> just make crazy errors and mental mistakes left and right because they know the threat that he is on the base paths the second that ball um, is in between the lines. Well, and, and to kind of backtrack, he is the fifth youngest to ever hit for the cycle, but I, I want to reference that game because I think that game is the highlight of exactly what L.A. De La Cruz is to, to everything you and I have both said here with elevating the players around him as well as you know making contact at the right time and doing what's necessary to help the team win. That cycle, every at-bat was a catalyst to help them stay in that game, to help continue to fight and build their lead by the captivation and, and the completion of the cycle to put them ahead. He's not out there with the intention of, okay, I can hit the ball 116 miles an hour. I can hit it 500 feet. I'm going to show the league how powerful I am. I'm just going to swing for the fences every single time. He's out there doing what's necessary to help them win. And I think that correlates right to his comments this week when he was talking about you know not participating in the home run derby. His comments were simple. It was, I need to make sure that I'm ready to help the Cincinnati Reds win. That's my main emphasis. It's not, yep. hey, I'm probably the number one marketable young player right now, rookie that's coming up next to Corbin Carroll. MLB wants me to be in the home run derby because they want to showcase me and brand me. Like, no, what's important is that I continue to help the guys that I've been coming up with, like Matt McClain win in the second half that's my focal point and i think that translates right back to what you just said which is home run rates a little bit down and, and that's it's a little disappointing because we want to see the explosion and the power right but the average is there at 32 percent strikeout rate like that's pretty damn good for a guy that had that as his kryptonite coming into the league while paired with a 300 average and at 21 years old he's seeing pitches and he's seeing levels of uh, dominance from the mound that he had probably never seen in his professional career so that 32% is only going to drop as he continues to grow in this league, elevating everything else in the box score around him. Average will go up, power will go up. And that's just something that I think when we're talking about 2024, you're looking at a guy that could realistically hit three to 330 with 40 home runs and 40 stolen bases, I'd say, as a 22-year-old. We're talking about Acuna having this you know historic season right now at 26 or 27, um, you know, that that's something that we're excited about. We're going to be talking about that ex same exact narrative next year with a 22 year old. And I'm, I'm just awestruck from what I've seen so far. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'm a fan. Cincinnati's pulling at my heart, I guess, you know, <laughs> as my next sports town here from the Midwest. Um, do you have anything else that you wanted to go over to? Um, we had an interesting t uh, statistic for Mookie Betts uh, coming into this year, you know, to date, he has eight leadoff home runs. Uh, that is tied for, I think, the lead with the Dodgers. Is that correct? All time? Uh, he's second right now behind, uh, what do we have? Jock Peterson. Jock Peterson 2019. Did it in 2019. Yep. So he had nine. Jock Peterson did. So, I mean, he's right on pace. Halfway through the season has eight. And, I mean, I'd not, not to steal your thunder here, but what Mookie's doing for the Dodgers, I know Freddie Freeman is in front of him in the MVP standings right now, but it's a little confusing to me because not only is Mookie doing it with the bat, they have him playing outfield and infield, and I don't think people are talking about that enough. Is it not that big of a deal? No, it, versatility is huge, but you know, Mookie was one of the best high school bowlers as well as a very good basketball player. Um, you're talking about an elite level athlete, a cross-sport athlete. So 
I, and when we talk about Otani, you know, there are other guys in this game that have done things that are extremely impressive in terms of athleticism. Mookie Betts is in that bag. And for him to be able to play outfield and infield, it just goes to his, you know, his level of athleticism. He's also, from a stature perspective, if I'm correct, 5'9", five, 5'10", five, he's the perfect type of player to cross into that infield. Uh, you have a guy that, you know, is shiftier and is already a gold glove in the outfield. He plays an infield with, I'd say, borderline gold glove defense as well. That's crazy, and I just don't think people are talking about that enough, and maybe it's because he plays for the Dodgers on the West Coast, some of that East Coast bias, and I think now Mookie's been so great for so many years and is on that massive contract that people just kind of overlook him and expect him to do superhuman things, but you just don't see that every day, and it's not like, oh, he comes in and plays shortstop every once in a while. Like This is He's a rotational player there at short for the Dodgers and then just goes into right field and dominates as well. I think it's a really, really awesome feat that he's done on top of now having a chance to lead the team and lead off home runs in franchise history. Uh, Mookie Betts is one of the game's best, and I, I there's literally not one other player in Major League Baseball playing at a gold glove caliber in infield and the outfield, and I just don't think enough people are talking about it. Well, no, and I think that's kind of the downside to the generational, you know, possible um, Mount Everest Mount Rushmore style that we're seeing from Otani, which is, you know, we have probably the greatest player of all time in our generation right now. And it's it's casting a shadow amongst the rest of the league where it's like, okay, well, who else do we really talk about when we have this type of player, right? The Michael Jordan of, of baseball. So Mookie's going to get less national attention on that. But you also have to put into the equation that, you know, the West Coast is huge. You mentioned that, right? And the Dodgers being a team that ha isn't as dominant as they have been in, in past years, the Arizona Diamondbacks being ahead of them. But Mookie Betts is by far allowing this team to be versatile at a level that we haven't seen. And, and I think one of the, the, the big things that pops into my head when we talk about this is think about if Mike Trout had the ability to play third base, right? Think about if Mike Trout could slide over to second base or play, even play first base because of the injury concerns that we've had and how a huge asset that would be to the Angels. You know, but at the end of the day, we're talking about Mike Trout possibly only being a DH in a year or two from now, which where if Otani resigns in Anaheim isn't happening. So you have Mookie Betts instead of Mike Trout. You're talking about versatility with his Angels team that allows Otani to stay in town as well as the Angels to utilize maybe Joe Adele or Mickey Moniak, maybe follow the hot bat. But instead, Trout has to play outfield. So the argument that I'm going to make is that Mookie Betts is far in a way more valuable than Mike Trout right now today because of his versatility. I love it. It's tough. It's tough to argue, especially since Mookie Betts is out there 150 plus games a yep. year, right? And, not, you know, we're not trying to dump on Mike Trout, but it's just this is now this is now officially a pattern. So I think we'll save our Angels talk for next year, but yeah. I don't think that's that's that crazy of a statement when you're talking to all world players. Well, and and think about what you said, too, right? You sign a guy 10 years, you know, 300 plus million dollars. And we're talking about Mookie here. And I think it was a 12 year deal. Uh, we'd have to look into it to get the exact numbers. But the big concern is like, are you signing him after his prime? Did, did his best days come before we got him, before he locked in? And with what we're seeing from Mookie is no, like Mookie's still been Mookie. You know, there have been some up and down stretches within his year to year numbers, but still has a great slash line at the end of the season, allows that versatility, bats lead off, right? Eight home runs in the first half. Like all he has to do is hit two in the second half and he surpasses Jock Peterson. Like that's probably going to happen. And then you look at guys like Mike Trout, Albert Pujols, Josh Hamilton, um, all unfortunately signings by the Anaheim Angels. But um, Anthony it, Rendon, Anthony Rendon hurt again today as well. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's just like it's got to be a tough decision when you sit down and you sign that that contract for one of these players because so few of them do work out. And luckily for the Dodgers, Mookie has worked out and provided versatility, which is the last thing you're expecting when you ink a guy to a deal. You expect him to be okay. He's going to be our right fielder for the next ten years probably our dh at the end of this contract but instead we lose trey turner hell let's move mookie in like what an asset okay so nba free agency has officially kicked off which is is a really fun time of the year the nba gives pretty solid content honestly for about a month or so after the finals end which it feels like 
oh, the NBA season has gone on so long. But then you think about it, a lot of these teams that got eliminated pre-playoffs, they've been done for like three months now. So the NBA offseason seems short because we have the finals that drags on so long. But, you know, we're almost ready back in the next season. Summer summer League's going uh, this upcoming Friday, the week that this podcast is coming out. Webb and Yaba's playing against Brandon Miller, which should be pretty cool. I'll try and tune in if I have time. Um, if not, I'll just obviously look at the highlights on Twitter or what, whatnot. But the biggest story of the entire free agency period has been Damian Lillard going back and forth, deciding whether or not he wanted to ask for a trade from the Portland Trailblazers. Basically, that got cemented once they drafted Scoot Henderson and were not able to move off of that third pick. And here we are. Lillard finally asked for a trade late last week. And um, the rumor is via the Internet and some of these beat writers and, you know, I don't know, insiders is what they're called, is that he only wants to go Miami, Miami Heat or bust. I want to play not only with Miami, but I want to play with Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler specifically. So that means Bam can't get traded. Jimmy can't get traded. Now, before I kind of give my two cents on this, is that I, I I like Dame Lillard. He's actually like my second, third favorite player in all of the NBA. So I don't, before the haters, oh, you're a Dame hater. Not at all. But the realistic facts of the situation is that Portland does not owe Damian Lillard anything at this point in time of their negotiation of Dame's career. They, in my opinion, have all the leverage because their team right now is set up for future success with Scoot Henderson, Simons, Shaden Sharps, all on a rookie deal right now. They don't have the pressure of a win now moment just because they have Damian Lillard. They've set themselves up through the draft with really, really good assets and a ton of cap space moving forward, even with the Jeremy Grant deal. So as much as Lillard wants to go to Miami, all the power is in Portland's court, and they should not let Lillard hold them hostage and go for a bad deal here. I wouldn't be surprised if nothing happens and they kiss and make up and Lillard does run it back with Portland this year because I do have a suggestion after you go of a team that might work but I think Portland similar to our Green Bay Packers with a superstar this offseason had all the leverage against Damian well yeah and this is what I said to you kind of as we were doing pre um, pre-recording notes is just I'm really tired of the NBA executive deciding when a trade comes to their table after a player has demanded a trade where they just say, you know what? Yeah, we'll take this deal. Not in the best interest of us now or in the future. You're giving us picks in 2029, 2030. But you know what? This player is unhappy. He wants out. We'll take the deal. It's just ridiculous at this point. You know, these teams have leverage on a lot of these guys. Harden, you look at just a few years ago when he demanded his trade. Kevin Durant inked to a big deal in Brooklyn. And yet here we are watching these players get traded across the country for what we really look at is undervalued trade packages. And it just always had me scratching my head. And I think you're right. Portland has the leverage. He's under contract. They are set up for the future. You want to hold out. You don't want to show up to training camp. You don't want to play this season. Fine. Like we are rebuilding anyways, but we're not taking Tyler Hero. He's not going to want to be here. He's not going to fit the rotation. He's not going to be motivated. And all he's going to do is negatively impact the culture that we're rebuilding with this young core. And I think at the end of the day, you're spot on. I think Dame stays in Portland. I think in two weeks, we see him come out and talk about how he's buying into this young core and he's going to do everything he can to have them ready to fight for the eighth or the seventh seed and you know develop them to be good NBA players so that looking at 2024 season, that they're a team to be reckoned with because I think the team's just going to tell him outright, like unless Miami offers BAM or finds a way to trade in for other assets or pulls in a third team, which was kind of talked about this week, you're not going to Miami. Like you are here because at the end of the day, this trade doesn't benefit us. And I think the last thing that's really interesting for me is I don't think we've talked about this yet. Uh, really disappointed that Scoot didn't go number two. I didn't think Miller was deserving <laughs> of the pick at number two. I understand that he fits their rotation better uh, with positional and sizing at number two. But it would have been really interesting if Scoot went two and Miller went three because Miller fits this rotation if Dame stays in Portland a little bit better. But you still have the same problem that he has vocalized over the last two years, which is I'm not here to facilitate a rebuild. I'm not here to play with rookies or second or third year developing players. I want to play with guys that give me a shot at a title. And it's like, okay, that's fine. 
but you have to be able to facilitate a trade to a team with veterans that still works for the team that you're currently on. And I just don't foresee a trade in the NBA happening. Um, you have a couple of teams that I think are probably better fits, but Dame kind of fell behind the eight ball here. This deal should have been done a week and a half ago before everything shook down. Well, in the deal, no, the deal should have been done before Dame got the extension because the problem mm -hmm. now is, and what, what the thing hanging over his head is, in four years, he's owed $60 million. And let's be honest, like Dame probably has two, three years left. He's dealt with some injuries. He's been healthy the past couple of years. This past season, he was unbelievable. But to your point, they were in a rebuild, right? And their roster is still set up for a rebuild. Like I said two minutes ago, they got three guys on a rookie deal, right? The, the likelihood that that team moves anywhere in the West with the heavy hitters in the Western Conference is low. So two teams that have been rumored, or actually, sorry, more one team, but I have a suggestion for a team that I think would be perfect for him. Um, now, I think it was either, I don't know, I, I get the days mixed up over this holiday, but Brian Windhorst basically said that this specific team wouldn't play, it wouldn't trade this asset no matter what. And I think that's a mistake. What would I would do if I'm in this situation and I want to go get Dame as an Eastern Conference contender? I am in Philadelphia. I am giving up Maxi for Dame. Reason being is I don't think Embiid's window is any longer or more wide open than Damian Lillard's right now. They have the best young asset to trade to Portland that aligns with their rebuild strategy, and they have some draft capital that they can send over as well. I think that trade would be more valuable than a trade with the Boston Celtics that does not include Jalen Brown, right? So I'm assuming they would package up some sort of Malcolm Brogdon or Derek White and Robert Williams and some picks. I think Tyrese Maxey, picks and maybe another asset would be the move for Philadelphia to put them in an opportunity to compete with the Milwaukee Bucks as well as the Miami Heat and obviously the Boston Celtics going into next year because they're going to lose James Harden and I really truly can't see Joel Embiid doing more than three healthy seasons in a row and I think three is stretching it which lines up perfectly with Dame and his contract. Well, I think the the bigger uh, picture here, you know, take Dame out of the equation here. We're talking about, you know, foundational movement within the NBA and the power structure. Miami has lost a lot of their bench depth, right? We saw Vincent go. We saw Strauss go. And we're talking about Miami almost being in a position here where they're seeing desperation coming into the 2023 season with that depth being gone and it being the reason they got to the NBA finals on top of an epic Butler performance throughout a number of playoff series. Miami absolutely needs Damian Lillard if they want any shot at returning to the finals, if they want any shot of being able to go up against the Bostons and the Milwaukee's, right? They, this has to happen, let alone the Sixers with have their own question marks. But you cannot roll into the 2023 season with Bam and Jimmy. You just can't. Lowry's another year older, right? Hero had the injury. Does he come out and have a down season, even if he is good. Is Hero a great number three? No. He is not even an asset that teams want in this league right now for, say, a Dame Lillard. So I think Miami is really up against it here. And if they want to get a deal done, there has to be another team in the equation. And I, I agree with you. If I'm the Sixers, I'm looking at Embiid and the height and the injury history that we've had and saying to myself, I have three guaranteed years probably with Embiid. I need to give him every piece that we can. And the two to three year, year window with Damian Lillard lines up perfectly with that. We'll bring him in. We'll give up Maxi. Um, now, Maxi, I do think probably is a little bit undervalued in the NBA around. I understand why they want to hold on to him, but you get a deal done when you need to get a deal done when you're in levels of contention. And it takes out Miami inadvertently here, right? Like Miami then does not get Dame Lillard. You can then cross them out as probably a team that's going to push you out of the playoffs. That in itself might be worth the trade. I agree with your Miami take wholeheartedly, and that's foreshadowing something I want to talk about uh, about another team in the league. It's like there's still an 82-game season we need to get through here, first of all, too. Like you can't forget that you need to get through the grind that is the regular season relatively unscathed and healthy, right? And Miami Heat relied upon a lot of those guys that we learned about in the NBA Finals and throughout the playoffs to get them there, right? And losing those guys means they have to build up some more undrafted guys 
sign a couple dudes in free agency for money that they don't want to spend, which they haven't done. So yeah, they're, they're a little bit of a wounded duck outside of the fact that they've now made two deep playoff runs, you know, makes their guys a little bit more fatigued shortens the off season. So um, I totally agree with you. I, th- I think it definitely would be the move for Philadelphia. The only thing that makes more sense and Bill Simmons has been, you know, preaching about this on his podcast. So I don't want to act like I'm taking any credit for this take, but is that if Jalen Brown moves to Portland, like that makes sense. Cause that now gives Portland a guy who is a quote unquote vet who, which Jalen is, and he's been to the finals and in multiple deep playoff runs. Um, and then obviously gives the Celtics that second scoring option that not that Jalen wasn't, but that an elite level player, it's it's the most fair trade, but you and I, shit, I don't know what it was right when Boston got eliminated from the playoffs. We discussed, we just don't see any duo outside of Booker and Kevin Durant. That is better than Jason Tatum and uh, Jalen Brown, minus the fact that Booker and KD's average age is, you know, what, eight, nine years older than those guys. So maybe not eight, nine, but much older than those guys. So, I just I just don't see any other team in the East that would make any sense outside of Philadelphia just because the MB thing, you just can't overstate how lucky they've been. He's been healthy, you know? Well, and first off, I agree. We, you know, we, we talked about this before we jumped on today. I think Jalen Brown for Damian Lillard is a home run for both teams. Um, you talk about floor spacing and, and how it worked positionally. It works for Boston. Tatum then gets to be the dominant three um, forward right? Gets to be the score. Dame gets to facilitate. You lose smart. You bring in the ability to have a, an elite level point guard yet again. Um, and Dame's above, I wouldn't say above average. He's average at, at defense, correct? Like he's, he's not someone that's yeah. going to be a, a negative asset for you. Um, so he doesn't have that smart defensive of, you know, prowess, but I think it's fantastic for Boston. I think it elevates and speeds up the timeline for Portland because then you're talking about being able to have the two guards set as well as the power forward position set. And now you're bringing in Brown as your three. Like you have four pieces in your starting rotation that are going to be elite in a three to four year window. When they all come together, Brown will be entering, you know, probably age 30. He'll still have a few years of his prime. Like this is a home run trade. And this is a trade I want to see happen. Um, But going kind of back to the Philly thing here, if Dame hits the Philadelphia roster for Maxi, you're talking about Embiid and Dame. Does that keep James Harden in town? Does James Harden pull out of his, you know, his trade request? And now you're talking about these three together or do you, and does it allow your team to trade Harden instead of future picks, but for more depth, for a better bench, allowing Tobias Harris to stay on the team who is a good player, right? Doesn't always show up in the playoffs when you need him, but talking about the 82 game season, like he gets it done. And now you're talking about a very solidified roster bringing in depth for James Harden and really making a two, three year window run where you are the favorite in the East. I, I think Philly or Boston are absolutely the best landing spots for Dame. Yeah, I agree with you. And then, yeah, if, if Harden still wants out, you know, you can get depth. He wants to go to L.A., potentially like a Norman Powell from the Clippers and maybe someone else. Um, I think they were saying in Clipperland that it's Terrence Mann or Zubak, you know, like the Clippers definitely have some good tradable assets as well, if that's still an option. So, dude, I totally I totally agree with you. Last thing um, on that Jalen Brown angle as well is I, I, I believe this to be true as well for Portland, right, is that. They do have a really nice young nucleus. You and I are both really high on Scoot. I see that nucleus about two years away from taking a Sacramento Kings jump, like what we saw from Sacramento this year, right? One veteran like a Harrison Barnes and a DeMontis Sabonis, right, coming into Sacramento, taking this team to the three seed like we saw last year. I could see that same thing happening in a couple seasons with this um, Portland Trailblazers young roster. And a, that's why Jay, uh, Dame wants to leave, but also why the Jalen Brown trade makes sense yep. too. So, like, I get why Simmons has been beating that drum. Um, it, it just checks out, and he obviously knows what he's doing. But the other thing, when I was just thinking about, it, I was like, you know what? Why is why is Philly sitting on their hands here? Like, go all in. I love Maxi too, but let's be real, he's not Maxi and and Embiid is. That's just that's just not going to get it done. Well, it's hard though. Um, you know, I, I think Zabonis is a perfect example. I think Brown is probably better than Zabonis. Zabonis is was for great, sure, right? Great, but I think that's the perfect representation of of what we would see interjected into Portland. Um, 
we don't know who Maxi really is yet because of James yeah. Harden. If if they are genuinely unwilling to trade him, there has to be something in the organization that said he's going to come out this year, put up 25, 26 a game, shoot 38% from three, dominate at the free throw line, come out and just absolutely elevate himself to a top eight guard in the league. And everyone would be looking at them like they were stupid had they made this trade. That's the only thing that I can think about is that development has been hindered because of having veteran assets on the team. And we see that every once in a while, right? It, it, it happens. Um, is the likelihood of that, you know, more or less than bringing in Dame and speeding up this, this top foundation for building this team? I don't think so, but we're not within the organization. And uh, I, you know, we've had teams recently that we root for the Christian Watsons, right? I think it's Jordan Love this season where a guy comes out and he just blows your expectations out of the water. And you're like, wow, I felt, I feel stupid now. <laughs> like, I, I don't know yeah. how there's any other way to put it other than like, I, I misevaluated who this player was going to be. And that also is something that gets you fired from your job. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, sure. it, it does, right? Like Maxi goes to Portland and turns into a superstar and, and Lillard's hurt half the year. You're talking about finding a new job. So there are also a lot of variables that I think that I'm as a fan might miss from time to time because we, we just roll over them. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, and that kind of, that's sort of what leads into, I, I'll call this my hot take of the episode, but just throughout free agency and we still got a lot of good free agents still on the market. Right. Um, I think one thing's becoming a little bit clear about one of our contenders and that's, that's the Suns, And I, I think I feel confident. No, no, not that I think I do feel confident saying that, I don't think the Phoenix Suns are going to finish top three in the West this year. And, th and this is why is after Devin Booker, we got Brad Beal and Kevin Durant. I ran some numbers and they have averaged together over the last three seasons, only playing 58% of their regular season games. Once again, I said top three in the regular season, right? And after those three guys, their lineup is a little bit suspect and after what we've seen throughout the first week of free agency here, I just really don't think their overall roster throughout an 82 game season is going to top teams like the Denver Nuggets, the Lakers, Memphis, Sacramento, and potentially even Golden State. So I really think the Suns are going to struggle with long-term durability, and we could see them sliding in anywhere from the four, five, maybe even six seed this year because they're going to have great stretches with their core three, four guys if you want to throw Aiton in there. But once KD starts missing games and Beal misses games because they're going to, I just think they're going to have a really hard time against some of these other teams at the top. And maybe we'll see a jump from a team like the Oklahoma City Thunder or one of these other teams that we're really not thinking about right now that was kind of down laying in the weeds waiting to make a move this upcoming season like we saw from Sacramento. Well, and Matt, I think this is the, the I think this is truly the death of the super team. And I saw a take on ESPN this week, which I absolutely loved. It was one of the anchors or one of the talking heads talking in regards to the Suns, and he said the best thing, and it's something I've always related back to these the construction of these super teams without LeBron is how many basketballs are on the court at a time? There's one, right? Right? How many shots can be taken on a possession without a rebound? One. So you have three shooters. And get, don't get me wrong, Devin Booker is incredible. Kevin Durant, hundred percent incredible. Beal, you know, if he can return to form, top ten, you know, got to give him top fifteen guard in the league. Doesn't matter, oh, guard, yeah, for sure, <laughs> right? It doesn't doesn't matter. Like, there's one basketball. We saw this in Brooklyn, and unfortunately, it was the Kyrie rolled ankle, and unfortunately, it was the toe on the line, and it was a weaker Eastern Conference, right? Like, a lot of things played into this. This is a dominant West. And the Lakers, right, finding depth in the playoffs to save their season, ultimately getting swept by a much more juggernaut team. But that juggernaut team still in the West, ready to fight and contend for their title and their their uh, two-peat, right? We're talking about Golden State, as you had mentioned, like possibly giving it the final two years of this run with this dynasty core that they've created. This is not going to be easy. And with injury-prone players and an absolute glaring hole of depth, there is a lot of concern that I think the Suns may, as you said, fall to the five, five to the, fall to the six, get knocked out in the second round. Heaven forbid in the first round, they go up against a Kings team that somehow found a way to play some defense and knocks them out right away. It's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. And I, as I said, I think this is the death of the super team because 
when we're talking about the train for, trade for Dame and we're talking about the Sixers in Boston and Miami, we're talking about roster construction and pieces that actually play well together and amplify the rest of the team. We're talking about Phoenix. You're talking about a bunch of ball dominant players, and that really concerns me. Yeah, I agree with you. And I mean, you look at Denver, right? They lost a couple of their assets, but they're still a pretty deep team um, and deep and young that'll be able to win throughout the regular season. The Lakers were able to re-sign Rui Achimura as well as Austin Reeves. They signed and picked up Gabe Vincent, right? They were able to bolster that bench and that lineup to sustain 82 games because LeBron is going to miss games for sure. And Lord knows Anthony Davis is going to be hurt, right? And then Memphis went out. They picked up Derrick Rose. No, I'm just kidding. But Memphis went out and they they traded for Marcus Smart. Okay, hello. He's going to provide an incredible veteran presence for that team and potentially push them to the top of the Western Conference, right? Like, I think that's an impact a guy like Marcus Smart can have on not only John Morant, but that young locker room, right? And they re-signed Desmond Bain. I think he got not the super max, but a max there. Um, and then obviously you look at Sacramento too. They retained all their guys. They're fully coming back healthy this year with De'Aaron Fox, Sabonis, Harrison Barnes and golden state. Look, golden state. Yeah. I know the Chris Paul trades a little weird, but he's going to be able to help out those younger bench players. Draymond just said it on uh, Paul George's podcast. He's like, I think Chris Paul's going to unlock Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody and all these guys on the bench that are like, you see the potential for Golden State, but they're young. So they'll be able to help you win throughout the regular season. Um, I just don't see any of that on anyone after the big three in Phoenix. You might be right. This could be the final, you know, the, the the straw that broke the camel's back for the super team and end this. And ironically and hilariously, it'll be with Kevin Durant, who is so much trying to create and continue super team, super team, super team after he was probably the last successful super team in Golden State. And it's ironic because he would never be able to do it as the number one guy um, as the head of the super team. Well, yeah, and you, I, I wanted to just highlight the Chris Paul uh, movement here because I saw a great snippet this week about how Chris Paul unlocked DeAndre Ayton and, you know, possibly and possibly protecting him from full bust territory. And you're talking about bringing him into Golden State. And I think uh, Kaminga is Kaminga. Am I butchering it? Kaminga. Kaminga. Thank you. Um, high, you know, top seven pick. I think, what was he fourth? Probably he was up there. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, a little bit of underperformance so far, but how do you not underperform when you're not given the ball because you have all of these hall of famers around you. But what I'm seeing from golden state is exactly what you said. Bring Chris Paul in, right? Solidify another veteran presence, help him develop these guys because we know we have a two or three year window, probably two at the absolute most before these injuries and this age really catches up to them. Let's get Paul to really start building the next foundation for what the Golden State Warriors are going to be. We'll pay him that $40 million a year, but that's an investment that we're pushing into the future so that when Curry and Draymond and Clay retire, we're still a good team, only looking to bring in a few pieces around these superstars that we got lucky enough to have high draft picks for. And I absolutely love that. It's a win now. It's a win future move. And then you have the Suns over here just thinking to themselves, well, if we add enough talent around Kevin Durant, we're going to win. Who cares about the bench? It's just really interesting to look at the foundation and to look at how some of these players' careers are going to be looked at because if Paul can come in here and set the foundation for the future, we're talking about Chris Paul elevating how many different franchises in his career over and over and over again. While on the flip side of this, we're going to say, how many super teams did Kevin Durant fail with? Yeah, 100%. It's going to be quite interesting. And I mean, the reason I still threw Golden State in that list, even though they were a little bit lower on the totem pole this year, is just Andrew Wiggins missed two and a half, three months. And his first games back were in the playoffs. If they can get a full, healthy season of Wiggins with those guys, too, um, you, you can't count Golden State out. I love their team. And they got embarrassed in the playoffs, too. So those guys are way too good and way too prideful to not come back a little bit more hungry, in my opinion, this year. Um, they were on a let's be honest, Matt, they were on a championship hangover this past year. They lost like 30 games on the road 
Like they were, they thought they could flip the switch and, and the better teams beat them this year. And, and obviously the Lakers were that better team that knocked them out. So um, I, I'm going to stand is, by this uh, take. Obviously we'll bookmark it. Um, it's it's July, but I, I really feel this way looking at the roster today as of July 4th. Where did Wiseman get moved to? Because Wiseman's not on He Gold got moved Stadium. to Detroit. Yeah, okay. I do think he might be a free agent or he may have one more year. Um, not to mention Draymond took a pretty team friendly deal to stay. He still got paid 25 million a year, but um, you know, probably could have got paid more, but he, he took a pretty team friendly deal. Well, and I, I bring oh. up Wiseman because, you know, when they drafted him, this was the idea that, okay, you got, you got the center position covered. It'll take a few years for him to develop. And like, let's be real, he busted, right? Like he just, he didn't work, whether it was age, whether it was rotational play, like fit in the NBA. And we're still talking about Golden State three, four years after his busted draft pick, I think second overall. And we're talking about a bright future for Golden State. And I, I think that's just credit to them and, and credit to the ability that they've been able to do with keeping this core together on top of bringing in Chris Paul. It's a very deep West and I, I just don't see how the Suns are going to be able to just bully their way through with three shooters. I mean, in, in my opinion, like are, are those three guys are, is Booker KD and Beal going to play more than 60% of the games this year? Yeah. I, I, I don't think so, you know? And so you tell me one or two or all three of those guys are out are they going to win those games? I just, I don't know. I just don't see it. There's a lot of solid veterans still out there. They just picked up Eric Gordon, which nice pickup, but also a guy who's going to be banged up and not play a few games as well. You know, it's just going to be really, really interesting to see how some of those young guys do. And they don't have any promising up and coming stars or young people to try and, you know, develop and, and run with. And let's be honest, unless they don't trade Deandre Ayton, I don't think those guys like Aiden too much either. So it's just, it's going to be an interesting situation. Frank Vogel has his hands full for sure. Well, and the last thing I'll say is like, I think Aiden's the perfect name here. Um, you know, we'd have to put him into a spreadsheet and see how this all played out. But, you know, I think we're still very unsure of how Aiden fits, not only with the Suns, but in this league and kind of, you know, we mentioned Chris Paul's name and how he elevated Aiden. Aiden's the type of player where if I'm Portland, and I'm trying to have Miami find a third team. Maybe I see something in an individual like Aiden where it's like, okay, you know, we'll take Hero and we'll take Aiden. Aiden fills the five where Nurkic, you know, had the broken leg and just never developed. Like those are the types of names where then you can bring back Phoenix some depth that teams like Miami really need to be looking at right now. But just off the top of my head, Aiden's really the only guy in this league right now with a also a very big contract, which is questionable in itself that a team may be willing to shop that also might still have untapped potential. The question, is it untapped potential or is it overproduction because of Chris Paul? Like that is a big question mark as well. Totally agree with you. Totally agree. Um, let's wrap it up. It's been beautiful. The Rockets haven't been too loud in the background. Actually, <laughs> we, we definitely stalled enough waiting to start uh, for when you first logged on, but everyone have a safe fourth. This episode will come out, you know, a day or two after that, but and we'll be back next week. We got all-star game for baseball. We're going to be recording all-star game night. Got a lot of stuff to talk about, mid-season report, teams that we think can still make it, so on and so forth. But you can find all of our clips and us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at PitcherBetPod. We'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.